This podcast discusses murder and domestic violence. Listener discretion is advised. On December 1st of 1900, five children slept in their house, seemingly unaware that their father was being murdered in his room. They were only later awakened by the cries of their mother, saying that something was the matter with Pa. After lighting a lamp and entering their parents' room, the children saw their father lying in bed. His head had been beaten in, and he lay dying. Dying because he was not yet dead. Though pieces of his skull had entered his brain, and his brain was beginning to protrude from the side of his head, John Hosack was, for the moment, still alive. John Hosack was born in Ross Shire, Scotland, on May 26, 1841, to his parents Alexander Hosack and Catherine Hosack, nay Monroe. Records of the time are scarce or scattered, but it is possible that he had an older brother named Alexander, after their father, born on the 13th of July in 1838, also in Scotland. When John was only a year old, his family immigrated to Canada. Swayed by dreams of prosperity and the wide open spaces of America, flush with land to be taken by white men, John Hosack eventually made his way to Illinois, and at the age of 25, unmarried and without land of his own, John found work at the farm of Alexander Murchison. Alexander Murchison was a fellow Scot who in 1848 had immigrated to America with his wife Anne and their four children, Alexander, 18, Jane, 16, Donald, 14, and Margaret, 5. The voyage across the Atlantic from Scotland at that time would have been around 57 days and was no doubt fraught with the uncertainty of a new land awaiting them across the ocean. Upon arriving in America, the family settled in Illinois and began to work hard, not only physically, but religiously, helping to found a Presbyterian church in the area. By 1866, Alexander's two sons, Alex and Donald, had both left the farm, and Alexander was left with his wife, his two daughters, and his hired hands. No doubt he was happy to hire another man born in Scotland when John Hosack came searching for work. During the summer months, John worked for Alexander, leaving briefly only to return to work again the following year. Still, John yearned for a land and a life of his own, and in the fall of 1867, he traveled west to Iowa to search for his own land. 34 years earlier, in 1833, the first American settlers had moved into what is present-day Iowa. Only 13 years later, in 1846, Iowa became the 29th state of the United States and quickly sent out calls for settlers, enticing them with the phantoms of the West, rich farmlands, good people, and freedom. When the Civil War began, Iowa supported the Union, 
and sent large supplies of food to the Union Army as well as to cities in the East. They also supplied troops to fight in the Union Army, sending around 116,000 men out of a population of 675,000. The highest proportion of soldiers sent to military service by population than any other state fighting in the Civil War. Alexander Murchison's son, Alex, was one of those men who fought in the war and survived. After the end of the Civil War, Iowa's population began to boom, the still open call of land and freedom alluring many in, including John Hosack. After exploring the relatively new state, John found a piece of land that he deemed suitable to his needs, a swath of 120 acres with soft, rich dirt, trees, open fields for planting, and most importantly, a space that he could call home, where he could build his own house with his family, where they could live together for years, where he and his children and his children's children could continue to prosper, all thanks to the hard work of his own hands. Here, he could build his fortune, the life he had always wanted. The land belonged to John and Indiana Hollis, who sold him the 120 acres for the mere sum of $480, about $10,000 in today's money. A single acre of land on average today in America costs about $12,000. Therefore, if John Hosack was to buy his land today at the average cost of an acre, it would cost $1,440,000. And for only $10,000, John had his whole life ahead of him. He returned to the farm of Alexander Murchison after purchasing his own land. Though there is no substantiating evidence, there are rumors that John had wanted to originally marry Jane, Alexander's older daughter, who was nine years his senior, and in 1867 would have been deemed past eligible marrying age. Whether or not he truly had eyes only for her is not known. What is known is that by December of 1867, John was going to be a father and the child was not by Jane. It was by Margaret, Alexander's younger daughter. Eager to put off the scent of any scandal that would come when their child was born, John and Margaret quickly married on January 28, 1868. They were married at Margaret's brother's, Donald's house. Throughout their married life, they would continue to lie, saying that November 19, 1867, nine months prior to the birth of their first child, was their marriage date. Neither Margaret nor John would have ever expected this lie to be later brought up in a court of law. And John certainly did not think of it in the early year of 1868. For in two short years since arriving at Alexander Murchison's farm, he had achieved exactly what he wanted. Land to build his life, a wife to help him, and a child already on the way to continue his legacy. In the spring of 1868, Margaret would travel with her new husband to Iowa. She would leave behind her roots, her family, her whole world. Except for her brother Donald, Margaret would never see the rest of her family. 
ever again. Farm life in the late 1800s could be isolating and grueling work. It was not uncommon for children, especially women who married, like Margaret, to travel to distant lands and never see their family again. And once on the farm, Margaret would have had many duties to perform. Work was broke down by sexes, with males performing the more labor-intensive jobs, such as clearing land and plowing fields, planting and harvesting, tending to any structures such as houses, pens, and fences on the farm, and also seeing to the larger livestock, such as cattle. Women were in charge of taking care of their families, no matter how big or small. Margaret would have had meals prepared for her husband and her children once children were born. She may have also been in charge of gathering eggs, slaughtering chickens, milking cows, and keeping the household clean. It would also have been a woman's job to clothe her family, spinning threads, sewing and mending, as well as cleaning all the clothes, a job that with modern-day technology seems easy and painless. To those without this technology, even to this day, cleaning clothing can take hours and be hard work. If water can be heated, it will be. Clothing will be drenched, scrubbed, dried, and even ironed if possible. It takes strength to do it properly, and it takes time. Yet, despite all of their work, women were little valued as true contributors to the success of their family's farm, with most praise and honor being put upon the men. This would have been no different from Margaret Hosack, who, battling with being torn from her family and her land, also now lived in an area with few farms and no established roads between them. Atop her duties on the farm, Margaret would have been expected to bear children and be a good mother to them, never stopping her work even whilst pregnant, and all the while working towards what was her husband's dream. By the winter of 1900, Margaret had borne John ten children, nine of whom survived to adulthood. Alex, Anna, Cassie, Johnny, Louis, May, Will, Jimmy, and the youngest, Ivan, who was 13 in December of 1900. She had borne one son, named Donald, after her older brother, who had died when he was nine months old. The infant mortality rate in the 1800s in America was 4.62%. So although tragic to lose a child, especially at such a young age, it is a miracle that more of Margaret and John's children did not succumb to various ailments and pass away before reaching adulthood, a fact that John and Margaret must have been aware of. In the 32 years that John and Margaret had been in Iowa, on their farm outside of Indianola, John had become a respected farmer, known for taking care of both his animals and his land. He raised cattle, hogs, and poultry, and grew corn as well. He had expanded his holdings from 120 acres to 200 acres. He had a two-story house with bedrooms for his children, a kitchen, and a large sitting room. He had the respect of his neighbors and fellow farmers, and had even run for county treasurer in 1898, coming within two votes of winning. Not deterred by his loss, 
John had quickly returned to his life on the farm, knowing that because of his own hard work, he had all that he needed in life. From the outside, life may have seemed ideal for the Hosack family. John had nine children who had survived into adulthood, five of whom still lived at home by the winter of 1900. And he had his wife, Margaret, who also miraculously had survived bearing 10 children without dying herself in the pains and the dangers of childbirth. But all was not easy at the Hosack farm. John, although hardworking and prosperous, was prone to a violent temper. He was easily provoked by his wife and came after his children as well. The worst bouts of his rage came when his wife intervened between him and his children, trying to protect her sons and daughters from their father's violent temper. Especially prone to his spells of anger was his son, Johnny, which had caused Johnny to move away and begin working at another farm in the area, no longer able to stand the domineering hand of his father. His wife, Margaret, however, remained with him through the thick and thin. But people now knew of the strife between husband and wife. Margaret was not afraid to talk to her neighbors of the difficulties she was having at home, often complaining of her husband's temper and, according to later testimony, more than once, wishing she could be rid of her husband. If only she did not have John in her life. That man who had taken her away from her family and her own land. If only he was not there. Life could be more peaceful. Her children would no longer have to live in fear. <sighs> How ideal that would be. In private, Margaret's neighbors were concerned for her, though none of them stepped forward to help. They talked of perhaps arresting John for the abuse he was wreaking upon his family, but under law in the late 1800s, he had done nothing illegal. There were even thoughts and rumors that all might be better if they locked John away in an asylum, if only to spare his wife and children from himself. But that was deemed unfit for a man of John's wealth and standing in the community. And so John Hosack continued to rule over his family until everything came to a head on Thanksgiving of 1899. Under one of his so-called spells, John Hosack had told Margaret to stay upstairs and out of his sight. At first, complying with his demands, Margaret had later left the house unbeknownst to John and had walked to a neighboring farm where she had been able to get a ride to her older daughter, Anna's house. The next evening, she arrived at home with Anna, and Anna's husband, Ev Henry. Feeling betrayed not only by his wife, but his own daughter and her husband who had kept his wife with them overnight, John told Ev that he never wanted to see him again and that he had better get off of his property. Ev Henry complied. Later that day, two of John's friends, Mr. Keller and Mr. Johnson, came to the house and spoke to the children telling them that it was their duty to honor and respect their father and that they had better do a better job of doing so. To throw their father into such anger was not befitting of loving children. They should all live together in peace. More importantly, they informed the children and Margaret 
that speaking to others of domestic disputes was unbecoming. What happened in the homes of others were private matters, and Margaret was no longer to discuss her issues with her husband to others in the community. She never did. And her and John seemed to repair their relationship. John apologized for yelling at his daughter's husband and went and spoke personally to Ev, repairing the rift between them. A certain calmness settled over the Hosack house, a calmness that lasted for a year. The following Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving of 1900, the Hosacks all gathered together to celebrate, inviting not only family, but also friends, throwing a feast for everyone in attendance. It would be the last time they would be together as a family, seemingly happy from the outside, looking in. Two days later, John Hosack would lay dying in his bed. This podcast was written and produced by me, Tate Rudolphy. If you are interested in any of my source materials, please see the podcast description. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. You can follow this and future podcasts produced by me on my Instagram at Tate Presents. Thank you for listening.